Well, let's uh, turn to the book of Exodus then, and to the Ten Commandments, which you find in chapter 20. And uh, reading at verse 7, returning to the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You'll remember here that the you in all the commandments is you singular or thou, so it's addressed to us individually. None of us must take the name of the Lord in vain. If we do so, the Lord will not hold us guiltless. Now we're returning to this uh, third commandment and you'll remember, I hope, uh, from last time that it concerns how we use or even carry with us the name of God because the Hebrew word here conveys the idea of carrying something. So it concerns how we carry with us God's name or his titles and as we saw last time, the commandment, like all the commandments, is much wider and deeper than we think it to be. We carry or take up God's name when we are baptized into God's name and when we profess the name of God. So there's a special relationship here to the sacraments. The moment you are baptized, whether as a child or an adult, the name of God is immediately put on you, uh, so you are sanctified and set apart. I, I know that as a baptized person you may not often think that way, but that doesn't change the fact of the matter, that the name of the Lord has been put upon you, so you carry the name of God wherever you go. Uh, the same is true when you profess at the Lord's table. I made special reference to the Gallic expression tokalfianish, or lifting up a witness. From that point onwards, in a special way again, the name of the Lord is identified with you, and you are identified with it. So you carry the name of the Lord, and you must make sure that you don't carry it in vain in your life, in a frivolous, foolish, or godless manner. <coughs> now, when I said all that last time, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that that's an application of this commandments teaching. Sometimes we can apply certain truths and maybe that can be a hit or miss thing sometimes. Is it a real application or not? That's not an application of this commandment. It's actually the meaning of this commandment. The, this commandment refers to the way that we carry the name of God about us, with us, whether in our life and conduct or on our lips, in our speech. Now, the fact that we associate it more often with our lips doesn't negate the fact that its fundamental reference is to the whole of life. Don't carry the name of God with you in a frivolous, foolish, or superficial way. We, remember, we saw the importance of being grave and serious as people who carry the Lord's name with us. But as well, of course, as taking it up in our lives, we also take up the name of God on our lips. 
And this commandment obviously warns us against doing that in any kind of way that is again careless, thoughtless, or disrespectful. And as we'll see, there are varying degrees of thoughtlessness and disrespectfulness as well. Now, I had hoped really to to cover all of uh, these things this morning, but the more I was working on it, the more obvious it became that that was impossible. So, I want to leave part of it to another occasion when I'm back with you. On that occasion, I want to look with you at the more formal breaches of this commandment with our lips, oaths, and vows, which are so important, really, that we should consider them separately. Whether these vows are personal ones that we take before God, or public oaths that are to do with office and authority, for example, taking oaths in church, um, when you take office, or indeed at baptism, or the Lord's Supper, uh, marriage, or when you take an oath in connection with an office of state, as a civil magistrate, we all saw the king recently taking an oath, whatever exactly that meant to those who gave it and to the person who took it. Um, it was still given and it was still taken. So I want us to consider these things separately because they are very important and they'll take a bit more time. But today I want to consider not these formal breaches of the third commandment, but the more informal ones, or the day-to-day ways in which this commandment is broken. The way in which God's name is taken in vain, in our homes, uh, in our communities, and in society at large. Now, the normal word that's used for breaking this commandment is profanity. Uh, That's the kind of catch-all term that's used for the verbal breach of the third commandment, taking God's name in vain with our lips. Now, the word profane itself in the English language comes from the idea of crossing over or crossing a threshold. And it was always used in connection with a temple or crossing a threshold into a place of holiness or crossing a threshold out of a place of holiness and into a place that is common. So the idea behind profanity is something that is abhorrent to God and that is mixing what is common and what is holy. Now, very often we hear the distinction um, secular and sacred, or common and holy, and it's become quite current in Reformed churches to hear people say, well, there's no such distinction between secular and sacred that everything, in a sense, is sacred. Everything, in a sense, may be sacred, all right. But there is a way in which certain things are sacred and holy and not common. And it's fatal to forget that. God sets apart certain things. He always has done, and usually, like I said, his name is attached to them. The Lord's Supper is sacred, in a sense in which the supper we have tonight when we go home is not Now, certainly when we eat together, we sanctify what we eat by the word of God and prayer. We say grace and we give thanks to it. But that's a million miles from saying that it is sacred, as the Lord's Supper is sacred. 
every day is sacred in the sense that we're supposed to live every day to the glory of God. But no day is sacred as the Lord's day is sacred to which he has attached his name. And this blurring of these distinctions that's really rife in Reformed churches is causing confusion. At the end of the day, if everything is holy, there is a sense in which nothing becomes holy anymore. And uh, you must preserve the distinction between what is holy and what is common. And to profane means that you treat what is holy as though it was common. Now, there are other words in the English language used to describe this as well. And they're usually words that contain the, con the consonants S, C, and R, anything to do with sacra or sacred. If you're desecrating a building, it means that you're taking away its holiness somehow. Sacrilege means that you're carrying something that is holy again into the realm of the common. So if you were to to take, for example, things that are used for communion and just use them for some other end. That is sacrilege. And that goes back to what I touched on last time, uh, using anything that belongs to God in a special way, with God's name attached to it, for a common use. For example, in the Bible, when King Belshazzar took the vessels that had been taken from God's holy temple in Jerusalem, when he took these vessels and used them in a drinking party, that was sacrilege. And you'll notice that it was when sacrilege or profanity was committed that God intervened. Um, in fact, sacrilege or profanity just invites God to, to intervene. That's what you're doing. That's why you should be so alarmed to see people mocking God or to putting anything sacred. Let's say someone was to stand up and to tear the Bible in front of you. You would catch your breath. Why would you catch your breath? Because you know that's a provocation. God may respond to it or not, and there's no doubt that it is a provocation, and God will deal with it as a serious provocation, but it's an invitation for an immediate inflation of judgment. And it's incredible mercy when it does not happen. I remember a well-known case that I, I don't want to refer to, specifically because everything's said and goes out everywhere, but I, I, it's a case that I'm familiar with, where a person stood up in a public space while a meal was being eaten and began to blaspheme the name of God and choked there and then on what he was eating. In a sense, it's no surprise, because it is a provocation to do such a thing. So, like I mentioned, to tear a Bible or to abuse this place, for example, when worship is being conducted, is a special provocation of a sacred space because it becomes sacred when we call upon the name of the Lord and constitute ourselves an assembly of worshiping people. It's a sacred space not to be abused. Or, again, to treat the Lord's Day as though it was another day is sacrilege. You are taking away from the holiness of that day, and it is Profanity. The Bible speaks about profaning the Lord's Day, treating it as though it was common. But here, you remember, we're confining ourselves to speech, to profane speech. And I think we can divide it, just to make it easier to understand, we can divide it into three categories of increasing seriousness. Uh, first, uh, careless speech. And second, what's commonly referred to as swearing, and third, 
blasphemy. Let's begin with careless speech. By that I mean using God's name or his titles. His name or his titles in a careless, frivolous or thoughtless way. That is profanity. It's profanity. And uh, there's a pandemic of it. We, we all know that. There's a pandemic. Uh, it's everywhere. Pandemics like this are the reason God sends other pandemics. Uh, the judgments of God are things that we invite by public, willful, falling away from his commandments. And here's one area in which it's seen. One of the most prevalent is the OMG. People saying, oh my God, in all kinds of different contexts where it means nothing, verging on the blasphemous, but always profane. And of course the danger is sometimes that you can just become familiar with this kind of thing. Perhaps even that you can start using it yourself. It's, it's one of the dangers, particularly in schools, that you can begin to adopt the language and the behaviour of those around about you and start to say these things. And at first, maybe when you start using words like that, you, you're a little scared to use them. But then as you start using them, you become more and more confident. Because the Lord didn't strike you down. A bolt of lightning didn't come from heaven. And so, oh, well, maybe it's all right after all. There's many times God doesn't intervene with a bolt of lightning. It doesn't mean that he's not going to judge you. You should never use it, of course, yourself. I hope you know that. But watch how you expose yourself to other people who use it. Now, sometimes there's not much you can do to protect yourself. I'll grant you that. Maybe, for example, you're in a workplace where people are taking the name of God, the name of Jesus, or the name of God, or God Almighty, or, or anything like that. They're taking God's name in vain all the time. Now, um, there's not much you can do about that, except <laughs> it's useful and important to point out that there may be more you can do about it than you are doing about it. Uh, perhaps you haven't even addressed it or said to anyone, uh, excuse me, would you mind just not speaking like that and perhaps giving a brief reason why not, and you may find that they may stop using it. So you may be needlessly exposing yourself to it because you just haven't stood up to defend the name of God. There are times when you need yourself to stand up to defend the name of God and to ensure it, not just for your own sake, but for God's sake and for the sake of other people around that they aren't needlessly exposed to the word of God. All it might have taken is your lips being used for the good and it would cease. And it's very easy to make excuses for ourselves in that connection. But don't expose yourself to it unnecessarily. And in connection with that, I'm referring to media, which are just awash with it. Obviously not the television, not only the television, I mean, but just everything else as well. If you start exposing yourself unnecessarily to situations where God's name is taken in vain, when you don't need to expose yourself to these things, what will happen is that you become desensitized to it yourself. You'll gradually become desensitized to it. And that is the sign that you are tolerating it. You see, if you are in a place and in a situation or even in a community where it's just all around you, if you're praying for God's protection 
And if you're not unnecessarily exposing yourself to it, you'll have that protection. You'll have that protection. God will keep your own soul personally sensitive to it. But the moment you make the choice to expose yourself to situations and programs or whatever where God's name is being constantly taken in vain, you've lost that protection. Your soul will become desensitized to it and that will lead to other sins and other forms of profane behavior which are far more serious and will come into your own life too. Now, when I say that these kind of uses are thoughtless or careless, there are degrees of thoughtlessness too. I mentioned recently, you remember a few weeks back we were looking at the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave, how the Lord uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Before, of course, he did that, before he put forth that power and said, Lazarus, come forth, we're told that at the graveside, Jesus wept. And I, I mentioned to you how extraordinary a thing it was that that little verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty six, I think it is, or 27, I can't remember, but that little verse in the Bible uh, has become a swear word. It's become a... a a profane expression in the streets of Glasgow. Uh, people will say Jesus wept when something unexpected or something unwelcome happens. And uh, it's more rife in the, in, in the poorer parts. They, they will just say that, Jesus wept. And you think, how did that happen? Well, of course, the devil has a hand in that. But the point I'm just wanting to deal with now is you may say to me, well, they don't know really whose name that is. They, they don't know what they're doing. Well, of course, in that case, that may well be true. And ignorance of the law is very often a mitigation when we break the law, but it's not always. It's not always absolving you when you break the law, especially if you could and should have known the law. And all of us, can know that it's wrong to use the name of God and we should know that it is wrong to use the name of God like that. We mustn't in any way excuse it to the point of saying, well, it's okay. You'll notice that this commandment says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. An interesting expression, that. Uh, sometimes you have a reason, as the shorter catechism says, there's a reason annexed to the commandment. Reason given. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Why is that in there? The Lord doesn't hold any sin to be guiltless. Every sin's got some kind of judgment or punishment attached. Surely it's used because people think it's something that's guiltless. People easily think that the casual or careless use of God's name is something that God doesn't bother about, really, or that God is not concerned about. When the Lord Jesus Christ says that every idle word, we must give account thereof on the day of judgment. And what word can be more idle than the sacred name of God or any of his attributes or titles used in a light, flippant, unthinking, careless way? And our ignorance of the law is no justification when we ought to know that law. There are Bibles all around us. It's easy to use ignorance as an excuse all the time. 
There has, it has never been as easy to know about God as it is now. With a touch of a button, you can find out any piece of information that's pretty much going on in the world, past, present, or future. And most of these people who carelessly say Jesus wept are walking around with a cosmic encyclopedia in their hands. We ought to know. We ought to know. And the Lord will not hold us guiltless. That's a thoughtless or careless use. I hardly need to say, friend, just let it never escape your lips. Don't use the name of Christ or God or anything, any title associated with them. Don't use it in a careless or thoughtless way. The second degree of profanity is what's commonly called swearing. Now, swearing technically has to do with taking an oath. But we use the term swearing for something less than taking an oath. We, we use it in connection with a certain kind of formula that we use in day-to-day life, <laughs> which is technically an oath, but never mind, it's something we use in day-to-day language. It's when we take the name of God um, into our ordinary language and we put the form of an oath to it, or we use it in the form of an oath. We're calling on, again, whether we're thinking about it or not, we're calling upon God to be a witness, a special witness to what you're saying or what you're promising to do. You're invoking God. You're calling upon the name of the God. Listen to me. May God listen to what I'm saying. May God take note of what I'm saying. May God take note of what I'm promising. And may God deal with me accordingly. For example... I swear to God that that's so. How many of you have used that expression? Or hear it used? I swear to God I didn't do that. Are you really swearing to God? Do you realize the gravity of doing so? (coughs) Even when you say honest to God, what are you saying? Again, you are using the form of the oath. You're asking him to be your judge and your jury. Honest to God. For Christ's sake. How often people say for Christ's sake in in so many different contexts and day-to-day activities. Oh, for Christ's sake, this or that. That is, using his name not just carelessly, but in the form of an oath. Or for God's sake. How often you hear that? Using God's name in the form of a sacred oath. Now the Pharisees are very misunderstood people. Everybody thinks that they were very holy. Of course they thought that themselves. But they had their own ways of justifying their own sins. uh, Which people who are not really believers always do. They they are very good at putting burdens on other people's backs but finding wriggle room for themselves. We'll see that when it came to the fifth commandment. They had a way of absolving themselves for caring for their mothers and fathers in old age. They had a way of uh, crafty accounting, you would call it, so that they could dedicate money to the sanctuary, uh, which they couldn't use on caring for parents, but there was a special kind of um, arrangement whereby they could draw on that money even though it was dedicated. You say, well, that's crafty. Of course it is. Well, that's what they were. They were... They were very good themselves at making laws for others but finding loopholes for themselves. 
In connection with oaths, they had a peculiar system of um, swearing uh, by Jerusalem, or swearing by your own head, or swearing by the altar, swearing on the um, on the gifts that were on the altar, and they made distinctions between all these things. Now the Lord says, of course, don't swear at all, he says. Just let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Now, <clears throat> next time I, I said that we're going to be looking at oaths and vows, because there are such things as legitimate oaths and vows. To take Christ's words at the most simple, basic level seems to imply that you should never go on oath or, or never swear to anything. That's not what the Lord meant. Context is everything. The Lord here is referring to that uh, everyday usage where swearing had become common. He says, don't do it, he says. Le leave oaths and vows to the sacred place. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that the Lord himself went on oath. Um, when Christ was being tried by the Sanhedrin, he said nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, a series of witnesses were brought forward to testify, and their, their witnesses were their witness was so poor, contradicted each other that the case was obviously falling apart. And the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, "Do you not hear what these people are saying? Uh, tell us the case against you." Now that's quite an astonishing thing, where. Judge and jury say, You tell us what the case is against yourself. But he tore his clothes and he said, I adjure you. That expression means, I put you on oath. Here in a court of the church in the Sanhedrin, I put you formally and solemnly on oath that you tell us whether you are the Christ. At which point the Lord opened his lips and said, You have said so. You have said so. Um, which doesn't mean you're saying it. In, the, in that culture, that means you said it. You said it. Absolutely so, that's who I am. Now, there was a command in the Old Testament that when a lawful authority put you on oath, you had to answer. There was no, um, what is it, it's the Fifth Amendment, where you can just take a bye. You had to answer when you were put on oath by a lawful authority. Now, if it was a sin to take an oath, if when Christ said, don't swear at all, <coughs> he meant to include formal occasions, he would never have allowed himself to be put on oath. So it's obvious that what he means by saying, don't swear at all, is in your normal everyday switch, uh, speech. Don't say for Christ's sake. Don't say for God's sake. Now, what about something like, for goodness sake? Or for heaven's sake. Do you use the expression for heaven's sake? Uh, what is heaven functioning as there? It's functioning rather like Jerusalem in the text that God speaks about. Well, I don't want to bring God's name to it, so let's take the holy city into it, Jerusalem, or the altar, or even your head, he says. That's like swearing on your life. Christ says Jerusalem's God's city. The altar's God's altar. Um, heaven is God's dwelling place. The earth is his footstool. He says, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Because, he says, whatever 
comes from more than that is coming from sin. In other words, he says, you can be sure when you start taking casual oaths like that into your life, there's sin involved in it somewhere. You're, you're trying to push an agenda. You're trying to force someone to accept what you're saying. or You're trying to make them go, perhaps, in a way that, that uh, you want them to go. It's all of sin. Reserve the sacred name of God for sacred and awesome occasions. When it involves an oath. And if you're using it anyway in day-to-day life, use it carefully and use it respectfully. It can be done in Gaelic too. I mean, I've noticed over the years, you know, people used expressions like a heave-over or a heary-over. What does a heary-over mean? Or a heary? Eternally or the eternal one. Or even in the, in the Roman Catholic areas where I'm more close to in the Southern Isles. They have expressions, unusual expressions, which gravitated a little bit in, into the North. I mean, I, I remember some people in North used using expressions like Kishalat Paula, uh, which literally means, oh, that Paul would look upon me, uh, which is a call to a saint for protection. There are, and these were just used as expressions. These things remind us that speech, anyway, is an important thing. And when we're teaching our children to speak, we should teach them to speak properly, um, to have a wide range of vocabulary, to express what they want to say properly, not to be rushing around for filler words, words that just fill a gap, which interestingly tend to be either sexual or biblical or religious in nature. There's, there's an F word. What's that doing in there? What is, what is that word doing in the sentence that's used? Nothing except polluting it and carnalizing it, just as the name of God is brought into situations where it ought not to be brought. Uh, These things cheapen the faith. They bring the name of God down. They take away insofar as we can take away from the glory of God, and they make us liable to judgment, because the Lord will not hold us guiltless if we take his name in vain. So that's the careless use that's commonly referred to as swearing. The third level of profanity is blasphemy. Blasphemy, which means to mock or to slander the name of God in a deliberate and disrespectful way. And uh, this again has a lawful application uh, to the things that carry the name of God. God's word, God's day, God's Bible, to mock or to slander them, to speak evil and disrespectfully and deliberately so. You'll remember when the prophet Elisha was uh, going into Bethel, he was met by a crowd of young men. I think it's more than likely that they were uh, in Bethel because that's where they were located. The word has unfortunately been translated as children in the King James Version, which is misleading. These, these were not children. These were young men. The word can be used of young men and children. It can be used, in fact, of a person who's fairly well up in age. And there's no doubt in the context there that it's not really a reference to children, it's to youths. In all probability, youths. That was a prophetic centre in, in Bethel for the religion of Baal, Uh, when it used to be for God. I mean, its name was Bethel, the house of God. 
But in the apostasy of the nation, it had become a centre of idolatry and the cult of Baal and the worship of nature, really. That's what it was. And, and um, that's where many of the, the Baal prophets reside. And now, you have to think of young divinity students, really, on the dark side, who are going up after Elisha and saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Sounds like nothing, I suppose, in a way. It's just, well, it's mockery and derision. Now, when they said go up to him, we're told earlier that he was on the way up to Bethel. But they didn't mean by that go up to Bethel. It was a reference to the, the, the rumor or the story that Elijah had just been raised up to heaven, which he actually was. Now, they're probably not believing it, just like maybe you don't believe things in the Bible that you don't think can be true because you haven't seen them or you haven't experienced them as though what I've seen or you've seen is the limit of what God can do. But they're going up behind him and saying, you go up as well. Let's see you rise up into heaven, bald head. Now you wouldn't think that calling someone bald head or baldy would be a reason for God's judgment, but it is. It was God's prophet, and what's more, not only were they insulting God's prophet, uh, after all God had said, do my prophets no harm. But they were also making a, an insulting reference to a sacred event, the ascension of Elijah into his glory. God, of course, summoned two bears, two ferocious she-bears, who are more ferocious than the he-bears. He summoned them from the woods, and 42 of these young men died that day. Why? Because the Lord will not hold them guiltless who take the name of the Lord in vain. Either here or in the life to come, it's logged and it's clocked. God knows it and God remembers it. Whether he intervenes now or not. So God's things in general are not to be blasphemed, mocked or slandered. But as I said, we're thinking especially about speech or writing. You'll remember when they accused Christ, they accused him of blasphemy. They said that he had blasphemed Moses. They said that he had blasphemed the temple. They said that he had blasphemed God. Of course, none of these things were true. You'll remember that they blasphemed Christ himself on the cross. We're told that they pulled their mouths wide you see, you see children do that sometimes to pull out both sides of the mouth and stick out the tongue that was a form of blasphemy because they were mocking him and ridiculing him in the gospel according to Luke and 22 and 63 we're told that the men who held Jesus now this is in his sufferings, they mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and said, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Oh dear, the, the foolishness and the evil of people. Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. They blasphemously spoke against him. Now that's dangerous territory. 
I hardly can tell you that. If anything's a provocation, that is. But our Lord famously said that all kinds of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven men, except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. He said too that any word that was spoken against himself can be forgiven, but a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could not be forgiven. When he says that any form of blasphemy any form of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. What he means by that, of course, is can be forgiven. It's forgivable. And many people have experienced that. How many of you here are Christians who used to perhaps take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain? How many of you even um, diced with death by blaspheming the name of the Lord, even joining with others in mockery? I don't know if you've ever think, thought even that if you mocked, let's say when you were in school, if you mocked a Christian, a professing Christian, have you realised the gravity of that? Making that Christian's life difficult in school by the way you acted when they were around because you were impressing your peers? The Lord does not hold you guiltless for that. He doesn't hold you guiltless. But every sin, including that and blasphemy, can be forgiven. How? Well, by repentance and faith. That's always how. There's always space for turning to God in repentance and in faith. And he says any word spoken against himself can be forgiven. By that he means in his state of humiliation. That's what he's referring to there. You, you can deal with me, you can think I'm a man, you can speak about me as though I'm a man, uh, you can talk me down, you can insult me and so on. All that can be forgiven. There is forgiveness for speaking of me in that way. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he says, there's no forgiveness now or forever. Now, what does that really mean? Well, it's all to do with how we think and speak against the work of God. To do with our level of knowledge and our culpability. If you remember in the passage that we read when Jesus was casting evil spirits out of people who were evidently restored, their lives changed. I mean, someone like Legion, who, who was filled by name with a legion of evil spirits, the Lord cast these out. And this man who was running crazily, naked, around the tombs was restored. He was able to sit in his right mind and he was sitting at Jesus' feet eagerly drinking the word. What an astonishing change. That change was by the power of God. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, what you're doing, you're doing by the power of the devil. You're an agent of the devil, and you are working for the devil, and it's the devil's work that you're doing. Now, of course, the Lord said to them that, that that was a ridiculous thing, that the devil doesn't fight himself. He may be foolish at many levels, but he's not that foolish. But the Lord says, watch, he says, what you're saying. You're not there yet, but you're on a path going there. The path where good becomes evil and where evil becomes good. You're on the path where people who have known a lot and heard a lot and have handled the word of God and professed that they were believers turn out to be those who are persecuting true believers and who are mocking true believers, killing true believers. You are in danger, in other words, not of speaking against me, 
but of resisting the whole work of God in such a mocking, contemptuous way that there is no forgiveness in this life or in the life to come. Now this connects obviously to some passages in the letter to the Hebrews. There are some warnings in the letter to the Hebrews against those who have professed the name of the Lord but who fall away to mock and despise it. So they turn absolutely. It's not just that they stop professing. It's not just that they go back into a life of sin but they actually turn around to despise and mock and to persecute Christians. They hold them in contempt. By doing so, they are putting themselves beyond the grace of God and God leaves them alone. It's what the Bible calls being given over. When you're given over, nothing reaches you anymore. Let me say two things. First of all, that isn't the same as generally falling back. Now, I, I wish to say this for your comfort. There's a, there's a way in which I'm uh, very wary about giving any kind of false comfort to someone who's walking in a really bad road. But there may be parents who are anxious about uh, family. Uh, you may be anxious about brothers or sisters or whatever because they profess the Lord and they've fallen away from that. That is not this. That has its own danger. Of course it does. But such people can be restored. Uh, such people are to be prayed for that they would come back to what they once professed. That's one thing. The other thing is this, that you can't really tell necessarily when a person has become guilty of this sin. It's very difficult for us to make that judgment. And in a way I think God just leaves it like that so that we would all be wary about it. There's a sense in which he wants us to be in awe at the prospect of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But there's no doubt that it's a reference to those who have turned against what they were once for. I remember <coughs> talking to a senior minister who's passed into glory, but it, it had been said to me that a person only blasphemes the Holy Spirit when they die. In other words, it's the last and final resistance against God. It didn't strike me as true that. But I asked this minister, was this how he thought about it? And he said, no. He said, this is a sin committed while you're still alive. He says, there are people walking the earth who are guilty of this sin. It's just that we don't necessarily know who they are. And I think that that is absolutely right. We don't know who they are. That raises the question, is it I? <clears throat> when the disciples were told that someone would betray the Lord, of course they famously said one after the other, is it I? Except Judas. And uh, Judas said, it would be good for that man if he had never been born. And then Judas said, is it I? There's a reason for that. But maybe you've asked the question, is this could this possibly be me? Well, I think the old answer to this question that the Puritans used to give, you'll find a lot of the Puritans dealing with this question, and I think the old answer they gave is not only the correct one, but the best one. That if you're worried that you've committed it, you haven't. 
That is exactly right. If you're worried that you've committed it, you have not committed it. Because by definition, the person who's committed this is not worried about it. These people couldn't care less. These people are not looking for mercy and can't find it. These are people who are just not. Well, I wouldn't even say they're not bothered with these things. They are bothered. They are bothered enough to be belligerent and militant against them. That's why when you see that, this, and there's one in my own mind, one I knew who was very much for and is now very much against, to the point of endorsing pretty much every campaign that is going current against God. You can't help but shudder and think that there is one walking the earth who has committed this. And in other words, if you were guilty of this, it would be very evident in your life and conduct. And my, my time's going, but can I, can I just warn you about watching that the devil doesn't put you in a cage about this? And use the, using the reference cage carefully, because if you're familiar with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and if you're not, you, you should, and I should keep familiarising ourselves with it. You'll remember in the house of the interpreter that Christian came across a man in an iron cage. And that man um, was a man who was in despair, and, and, and the despair was his cage. And he was expressing his despair um, in the terms that I, 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 there's no mercy for me anymore. I, I, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against the day of grace, and I, I've sinned I, I, against the Almighty. And Christian says something to him along the lines of, there is still hope. And he says, there's, there's no hope for me. Uh, the hope is gone. And Christian walks on from the man in the iron cage. Now, <clears throat> the Pilgrim's Progress is not infallible. Um, it's, it's extremely good, but it's not infallible. And sometimes we have to be careful because... When the man says that there's no hope for him, he then uses the expression that God has put him in this cage. Now that doesn't mean that we're to think he has an infallible understanding of his own situation. <coughs> Never mind that Bunyan doesn't have an infallible understanding of it. Personally, I think that it's dangerous to represent that kind of picture. Um, if you're in despair, that's a sin. Despair is a sin. Despair is a sin when the gospel is there and the door of repentance is open. Now, it's meaningless for that door to be open if you have turned every part of your being against wanting to go into it. But to actually be sitting down saying, well, there's no hope for me and there's no way back to God, that's not right. That's not really biblical. There is hope and there is opportunity. There is no one who wants God in their lives that will be refused. Can we understand that? If, if that whole incident is based on the experience of Esau, who wept at Isaac's feet for the blessing, and were told that he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears, if it's based on that, it's based on a misinterpretation of that. The repentance that Esau couldn't find literally change of mind, was a repentance in his father. Esau wasn't wanting to, to be a Christian and uh, to know the benefits and blessings of salvation. Esau wanted the money. 
He wanted the blessings, the temporal blessings that had just been given over to Jacob. But he found no repentance in Isaac. Isaac said, I've said it. For some reason God has meant it this way and it's not going to change. And Esau became dead set in hatred against his brother. Don't think of that as a picture of somebody who's asking God for mercy and God won't give mercy because God delights in giving mercy. So watch you don't make an iron cage of despair for yourself where you feel that there's no way back to God because there is. The only thing that can hinder you is if you just never even want it. And maybe you don't want it just because you've rebelled against what God gave you. Now I just want to say one more thing and uh, it's to do with the law. Just really briefly. Our our law is used to um, outlaw the make profanity and blasphemy illegal. For example, if you, if you were engaging in profanity, there was a kind of, um, there was a fine imposed, and that fine would be used for the relief of poor people, which is, which is a good thing. You find little traces of that in things like a swear box. You sometimes see it when people have a swear box, if you say something, you put money. That's where that's came, come from. It's come really from the 17th century and from fines that were used for relief of the poor. Blasphemy uh, would carry more severe um, penalties, and in some cases, death, but it had to be shown to be willful and malicious. Now, over the years, this has been abolished. In the 1960s, that particular Labour government, which introduced so much progressive legislation, which is, of course, regressive legislation, like the Abortion Act and so on of 67, also took away laws against profanity, Laws against blasphemy were taken away in England and Wales in 2008, in Scotland in 2021, as recently as that, by the hate crime legislation. And isn't that interesting? That's the hate crime legislation that took away the offence of blasphemy. You mustn't hate people, but it's okay to hate God. Any law that protects the sanctity of God's name, out it goes. But there's no end to laws that will protect the people who want to blaspheme God, who want to blaspheme his word, to blaspheme his church. The more opposed you are to that, the more laws there are to protect you. What you don't hate, what you don't appear to hate, what you don't say anything that might be construed as hatred against those who hate the Lord. They have to be protected on all sides. The more blasphemous and profane the behaviour and the speech, the more likely you are to be protected. Why? Because the honour of man matters far more in 2023 than the honour of God. In fact, man has become God. But the Lord will not hold them guiltless. Like I said last time, I'll come back to oaths and those, but may the Lord bless these thoughts on this word. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us to respect uh, your name, for it is holy. 
and uh, we pray to respect all these things that are attached to your name to in a special way and uh, give us not to make common uh, what is truly sacred and we pray to be vigilant in these things lest we lower our own guard to use words and expressions that we ought not to use Give us the courage and the love and the compassion to bring before others their misuse of your name. For if we love those who are abusing it, then we will try to put them right. And we will do so in a caring and gentle way. We ask, O Lord, that uh, you would bless the children amongst us and help them to respect and honour these commandments and to do so as they grow up for you take note of that and uh, the children who show that respect will have a special guard and protection later in life take away our many sins many of them too thoughtless and careless in the precious name of Christ O Lord Amen We'll sing in conclusion verses that we're very familiar with. And they just concern the name of the Lord. We all tend to sing them at the close of communion season. Psalm 72. At verse 17, which just remind us of the sanctity and glory of the name of our God. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and bless all nations shall him call. That's the name of Christ. Blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel, and blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. We'll stand to sing the last three stanzas. Yes,
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.